cheery Sunday morning. So glad that you're all here. Uh, I'm going to pray, then we're going to dive in. I'll explain kind of where we're heading from here. I'm excited to be able to jump into Genesis. And so we're going to kind of look at some different studies throughout the books of, book of Genesis. Obviously, it's a pretty big task to say, oh, we're going to deal with all of Genesis and everything that it has to say in 12 weeks. So that's not going to happen. But we will start to move into some of those uh, specific topics that I find interesting. So you'll follow along. Okay? <laughs> How do you like that? Uh, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you just for your graciousness to us. We do thank you that you are... You have given us your word that is such a rich resource for us to study, to shape our hearts and minds and lives around. And Lord, even just as we look at Genesis, Lord, maybe we be filled with wonder and amazement at how you created all things, how you structured all things rightly. Lord, would you give us a great confidence and hope in everything that you've done on our behalf for us and are doing in the world. Lord, there is so much for our church to be gleaned from this book. And I pray as we study it, Lord, you would be glorified, we would be edified, and we would have our hearts and minds shaped and formed. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you look at the top of your handouts, and if you don't have one, there's a couple here and out in the foyer. But at the top of your handouts, there's a couple quotes here just as we think about Genesis and the significance of it. And it is an incredibly important book for the church. Uh, last year we looked at Galatians, and that is another incredibly important book for the church. As Galatians kind of forms uh, a huge thrust of what is the gospel saying? How do we frame that rightly? Genesis, however, has kind of this foundational perspective to it that it becomes... Uh, extremely important. In fact, if we didn't have Genesis, uh, there is much that we would not understand about God, about who we are, about so much of the Bible. So Jack Collins, a professor at Covenant Seminary, says this <clears throat> as he wrote a commentary on just the first four chapters of Genesis and then went on to write more. But he says, how can anyone get tired of studying the opening chapters of Genesis? Having sat in his classes and his lectures, I'm like, ah, oh, there's, there's an end, but I probably shouldn't. But I do get weary, as the disciples did, and I probably fell asleep uh, mentally in his classes at times. But I think he's right that there is so much for us to mine up in Genesis. Uh, T. Desmond Alexander says this, The opening chapters of Genesis are exceptionally important for understanding the rest of the Pentateuch. And Jeff Thomas, a Welsh preacher, the theologian says this, the influence of Genesis in Scripture is demonstrated by its being quoted over 35 times in the New Testament, hundreds of allusions appearing in both Testaments. And R.C. Sproul says, Genesis is the foundation upon which everything in the Christian faith rests. I do love how R.C. Sproul is willing just to lay it all out there in very absolute fashion. And he probably... Uh, is not just saying that in jest. I think he actually probably believes that, that there is so much that is built upon the foundation in Genesis that we have. So even as we approach this book, the book of Genesis, as we start to think about it as a church together in Sunday school, I um, wanted just to enter in with you guys to see there are certainly many, many questions and thoughts and perspectives that come to mind when you think of Genesis, and our culture even thinks of it, but especially you guys, 
I just want to see how have you thought of the book of Genesis when you approach it? What are some things that maybe come to mind? Yeah, in the beginning. That is certainly, like, even kids will say, yes, in the beginning. Absolutely. What was it? Void, yeah. Kind of without form and void. Like, like it kind of gives you just a picture as far back as you can even think. Jesse, yeah. Blueprint, yeah. Yeah, starts to give kind of this framework maybe. Hmm. What was that? Yeah, it starts to also kind of give us a picture of how did we get into this mess when we start to look around. It starts to depict that in one of the clearest ways you can imagine. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that is... Certainly something that starts to come up very clearly, especially in the early chapters of Genesis. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Brian. Marriage, yeah. It starts to, like, there is kind of a foundational principle started to be formed around things like sin, but especially marriage to say, how are we, why are we even, you know, two genders? Why does God create it this way? It starts to give this picture very clearly and just states it. Yep, Absolutely. Yeah, just kind of these relational um, expectations set up in the book of Genesis. That how does a eternal, sovereign, holy God relate to finite and now even sinful men? These covenants, and it starts to define that relationship a bit more. Yeah, Lori. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It kind of paints the ideals a little bit. Um, I had studied the book of Genesis at one point, and the, the professor had said, like, like, you are, like, especially pre-fall, he's like, let's consider it without the expectations of the fall being a reality yet. And it's incredibly hard to do, but this is what Genesis does a little bit. It shows you what it was like in Eden almost. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just... Kind of that starts to show up right away. Like we, th- we th- tend to think, oh, that's a New Testament or uh, kind of even a Pauline doctrine almost at times. But it's like, no, this is very much like all of Scripture actually forms that. And it comes up right in Genesis. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> There's something very foundational and core to human questions even. And that might even move us into this, this next topic I have there just for discussion. Or what are some major questions? And I'm not necessarily bringing this up to answer them all right here, but just to recognize that there are many questions that, uh, if they're not a lot of questions you have, like you probably could spend more time in Genesis, because I find the more I press into Genesis, the more questions that start to arise. And some of it's just taking hold of those questions. Where, what are those questions that I have? Where are they coming from? And are these questions that can rightly be answered here, or are they not? Uh, but just acknowledging, I do have these questions that I'm bringing to the text um, sometimes, or sometimes they just emerge out of the text. Uh, what are some questions that you've run across as you think about this? 
Mm. <laughs> Why is he speaking in the plural? <laughs> so confusing, God. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Jesse. Yeah. Why spend your time here? It turned out kind of awkward for you, <laughs> to put it lightly. Right. Yeah. It was, and that's one of the questions many um, atheists often get really hung up on. Like they come back to Genesis and they say, you knew this was going to happen? Or if you did or didn't, like then they start to get bound up in knots around just that point at least. I don't know if that's where you're heading with it, but it is certainly a question that um, yeah, bothers many, many people as they come to Genesis. Drew, is that a hand I see? Okay, well, anyway, <laughs> stretch on. <laughs> yeah, yep. Thanks for stating the question that many pr- people probably are asking. Yep, absolutely. That is, I mean, you hear it very simply and very plainly stated. You're like, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> Is this supernatural? Is this not? And there's certainly opinions all over the place when you run into that. Yeah. Oh, ages, yep, kind of probably similar, similarly related. Like how far back do we go? Did I see? Yeah. Where were the dinosaurs? (laughs) Jurassic Park, we need answers. Yep. Uh, absolutely. Any others? Yeah, you can start to see why, uh, to me, Dr. Collins, but Jack Collins uh, would say this. He, he's found so much that has to be unpacked within even just the first few chapters of Genesis. There's many other questions about Genesis if you continue on, especially as you get into covenants. How is this relationship rightly formed? And there's many other questions, even beyond just our practical questions that are usually more scientific in nature and identifying who we are. But there are questions uh, that start to emerge actually just about the language, uh, sometimes even about the sources of the text. And Dr. Collins even says this gets uh, fairly exhausting at times if you start to engage every single question, but he said as you, as you find yourself going back to the text itself, uh, life starts to breathe into your lungs again. <laughs> Almost, it's like, oh, there is value to be found here and something really, really rich for us, but there is a sense that there is no end to the questions you can have when you come to a book like this. Um, and as we study this book, one of the questions that should be in the forefront of our mind is why was this book written? Is this something that is like directly written down by God, handed down to Adam as he's walking away? Or is this for a specific purpose? There is certainly a specific purpose in which Genesis was written. And it's actually, many of us will recognize, like this is part of a larger chunk of scripture. And the Israelites would have uh, called this the Torah, the Pentateuch. This is the teaching for Israel. This was a certain section of books, and there is a uh, a certain amount of unity that they would have recognized within the Torah. They would have said there is a connection from Genesis up to Deuteronomy, and we would even say, well, obviously, if God is the author, there's a connection much further than that, but just as a 
document, there is a unity, a theme, a narrative that kind of carries the whole thing through. And so there is certainly a plot that kind of continues from one book to the next. And it's even interesting how there's different motives picked up from one book to the next. Even as you see in Genesis chapter 15, 50, Joseph's, it's kind of a cliffhanger ending. Joseph's kind of like, would you bring my bones up out of this land? And it, its conclusion is found in Exodus chapter 30. And the, the instruction for the consecration of the priests in Exodus is picked up in Leviticus chapter 9. And so you see this thing kind of carries forward. Even in Numbers, it anticipates the death of Moses outside of the promised land. And then Deuteronomy 34 sees that realization. So you see that there's at least some linking features that it's like this is kind of like a five-part story. And I'm a big fan of trilogy movies and books and those types of things. So the, the Pentateuch is actually fantastic in that, in that sense because there is an incredible unity to the whole thing. I say There is something that is being framed around who God is, God's people is, everything that is going on, and Genesis fits within this. So if we were to say Genesis is foundational, actually the Pentateuch is also foundational for the people of God and for us as well to understand certain things, to say that this whole thing becomes incredibly important for us. And there's just a few things that I'll highlight for us that we can just look at really quickly. And so it becomes foundational, and there are probably many, many others we could identify, but here are three primary ones I would point to. And the first would be the Pentateuch becomes a foundational document to the whole Bible because it gives us a right perspective of God. It gives us this right perspective of God. And even as we've briefly discussed, um, how are some ways, especially broadening beyond Genesis just for a second, how are we seeing this in the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How are we seeing this frame our picture of God. We've mentioned in Genesis, obviously, it kind of shows him he's not just a random God amongst many. He is the only God. He is all-powerful, seemingly. <laughs> he is the creator. Go on as we, we think about even the Pentateuch. Just, yeah. So there's a justice to him that sin can't just go on undealt with. There's a problem that has to be reconciled. And there's quite a bit said just around the law to say, how is an unholy people now going to live in the presence of a holy God? In fact, that's a very central theme throughout the Pentateuch. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there is uh, characteristics of God that start to be displayed in a very doctrinal format. But then there's also just like you watch him walk with people in the early chapters of Genesis. You also just see the way that God engages very relationally in a way that his justice seems to almost not work well with. You're like, how, like, how are you such a, a kind, loving, patient God? <laughs> How do you enter in, in in both of these spheres? And it, if, if you just had it as a list, you would never see that. You'd never see those characteristics of God, but it's almost like, let me show you who I am. I am who I am. Let me show you a little bit. Walk with me. Follow me. I will be with you. 
And so there's also just a live with me. And the Pentateuch starts to frame just this living with God. Is it Jesse? Yeah. So you certainly see God's patience. If you were to think God is just just, it's like, well, I mean, we would have been gone a long time ago. But you see God again and again and again. And he just delivers uh, all of the people from slavery. And they get just a little bit into the desert. Like, can we go back? <laughs> You're like, all right, I would have, you know, second chances are good, but that, that's the end. Like, if I were God, probably, you know, like that's the level of my patience. But this is a very different God. He is one who is exceedingly patient. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Anything else on the character of God, Kevin? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It seems to be like there is a certain amount of chaos that kind of exists to the point of like, I mean, it comes to the flood and it's like everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and it's like the thoughts of their heart are continually evil. Like, can't even quite fathom that level of God removing his, his covering off of humanity. And yet, like amidst the chaos, God brings order. And he continues to push it forward and push it forward. And so, like, there's, there's very much a sense that God brings order and he's sovereign over it. And he is with a skillful hand moving the thing forward at the pace he seems to want to. Because I think I, if I was, <laughs> again, if Paul was put in that driver's seat for a second, it'd be like, it'd be pretty, pretty quick. I mean, I might give it a couple weeks, but, you know, we'd be moving along. But God certainly doesn't do that. And he is certainly in control. Yeah, like providing for them in the desert even. Like, I mean, he, <laughs> it's like to the food was, I think the meat was coming out of their noses type thing. It's like the way it describes it is like, you need food? Like, I'll, I'll take care of you. Like, it seems like, yeah, continues it on. Yeah. Absolutely, like in the most dire circumstances, the Lord provides, certainly. Anything else? That would be wild. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, there's... Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anything else as we think on that? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. So there's something he's <laughs> laying down very foundationally even at that point. So we do see very much, like even you had mentioned, Dad, the, the character of God start to be displayed in a very foundational way. And it gives us this perspective of God that is at least heading the right direction. We don't know everything there is to know about God. There are many questions that we should have about who this God is. And rightly, as the Israelites were wondering, like this God has delivered them from slavery, and they're almost wondering, who is this God? Is he trustworthy? There's a sense as we come to it. If the Pentateuch is all we have, yeah, we still have some questions. But it does start to point us very much in the picture of this is a just God, a holy God, a patient God, a relational God, a God who is all-powerful. You start to get the picture of some of these things that are fleshed out much, much more fully as you continue on. And moving slightly beyond that, the second thing I think this becomes foundational for us is this uh, picture that it does show us God's divine purposes in this world. There is a sense that we might ask, I think someone asked it earlier, why did you do it? And Genesis starts to answer that, starts to enter into what are you about, God? What are you going for? He highlights humanity as uh, being very unique and special to him in a very particular way that says God values humans in a way that he is willing to set forth a personal relationship with those people. And even when they sin and mess up, he's willing to come back to them and reestablish it. And even as we come to Genesis chapter 3, and you see everything fall apart, God seems to give this word to the snake and to Eve and to Adam, saying, I will deal with this. I will redeem this broken situation, this broken nature of this good creation that I have. And so all of a sudden you see, like, I mean, that's just showed you, he's basically revealed his cards a little bit, even to his worst enemy. He's saying, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and I'm going to get there. And you're like, wow, that's kind of a power play if I've ever heard of one, but God does it. He says, I, I'm going to redeem this, and this is what's going to happen. Uh, so it does show us God's divine purposes. Any other thoughts on that as you think of the Pentateuch especially as a whole? Noah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very specifically, I will be your God, you will be my people. He's saying, I want a relationship with you. I'm not happy just existing. I will be your God, you will be my people. That sets out a motive for the rest of Scripture that continues to carry on that he has a people that he is going to redeem. He has a very specific plan of redemption. And even in the Pentateuch, I mean, it carries very specifically into specific promises about land, blessing, about you're going to, I mean, as many as the stars will be your descendants. Like, you start to get this perspective, but most specifically, this perspective of relationship. I will be your God. You will be my people. Absolutely. Uh, 
A third thing that I think this becomes foundational for us in is it depicts foundational principles for ethics based on God's character. So you do see who God is, but you also see what is right and wrong a little bit start to be formed. How are we made? How are we made rightly? Uh, why is it, like for us in the church, we would say, well, life has supreme value, especially human life. Like God has given it. God has cherished it. And even as the world around God's people presses in, many would acknowledge the same thing to say, it's not right to murder needlessly. Uh, there are moments that the depravity of their minds starts to press in on that, but generally everyone's going to admit to a certain degree that life has value. And you start to see, like, where does this come from? Well, God stated it. He put that in place. He built that within us so that you kind of have the law very clearly embedded within our society. And that is probably one of the strongest proofs for the existence of God. Why is anything right or wrong? comes back to this foundational principle within the Pentateuch to say God defines right and wrong. And it's based on who he is. It's based on his characters, based on his word, the things he says. And it seems like you think of who has the right to craft such legislation? Well, that's God and God alone. Pretty substantial when you think of that, that section of Scripture. I think one of the things that I am regularly drawn back to is, I mean, some of those opening chapters of Genesis define so much about who we are rightly to be, how we're rightly to live, what we're rightly to think, and the things we're rightly desiring. It's very much started to be pictured and depicted in these early chapters and books of the Pentateuch. Anything else as you think on that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 And later he answers it. He's like, it's not you. <laughs> it's me. I picked you because I wanted to. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, Uli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they, God chooses very, very specifically, like, uh, on a similar line of, like, why us? But, like, he, did, he chooses people for specific purposes, and even as he picks someone like Moses, he's like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I'm not that good a speaker. I don't say stuff too good, you know. <laughs> and God's like, yeah, I can work with this. I got this. Come with me. Um, so there are some foundational things, and I'm sure we could come up with a list much, much longer than this. But these are certainly foundational principles to the Pentateuch to say, why does this matter? Uh, we should, as the church, be able to come back and say, at least these reasons. That it gives me a very good perspective of God. It gives me a picture of his divine purposes. And it also gives me this ethical framework for humanity and for the world and for God. So in this being such an important book, it starts to become very important for us to understand what is 
kind of the central theme or climax of the whole story. If it's all one big story, oftentimes it helps us to understand, like, what is kind of the culminating moment? And many times we'll think, like, well, this is, I mean, there's so much about the law. Like, we tend to think, like, well, maybe that's the central motive and theme. Like, just be holy. Exodus 19 through Numbers 10, like, there's a big swath of text that starts to focus on law giving and then implementation of that law giving and then Deuteronomy coming back to don't forget what I taught you. I mean, there's huge emphasis on this. And yet I think if you study the Pentateuch much further, and this is something that um, several theologians have identified, and I think I would agree with them, but let's turn to Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 through 38. This becomes uh, somewhat of a massive moment, not somewhat, it is a massive moment, for the people of Israel, and indeed for this story. So uh, Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. Someone want to read that, or do you want me to belt it out? I got it. Derek? You get this picture here, the tabernacle is just constructed. I mean, you have this whole big story of, you know, God creating things, man falling, things getting into chaos, him identifying people, redeeming them, and then setting forth some of his plan of redemption for them, of what this is all going to look like. And then this holy God with this unholy, unrighteous people who's grumbling, he places himself smack dab in the center of their camp. All of them are camped around the tabernacle. And he comes and he enters in. And if anything that should like cause like chills to go up your spine, it's that moment to say, he's found a way to dwell among his people again. It's like that, if anything, should be like, we're at a high spot in the Pentateuch. <laughs> like this is a climax of the whole story. God finally found a way to dwell among his people. Um, it is pretty unreal if you understand the character, the nature of God, and the depth of sin to say, how is that reconciled? Absolute mystery, actually. <laughs> I think in Peter, uh, the Apostle Peter, the angels are looking on probably just like, I don't get it. <laughs> These are things I'm longing to look into. How is this happening? I don't understand. So this becomes certainly a high point in the Pentateuch and something for us to keep in mind, especially as we come into Genesis. So this book is heading somewhere and is for a specific purpose, um, and it is telling something for us to understand for God's people, but this is not out of context of the rest of the Pentateuch. So one of the major characters becomes, if you have uh, some room there, one of the major characters, there's certainly many major characters, but one of the major ones who kind of mediates this relationship between God's people 
and God and his kind of central in all of this becomes Moses in his leadership. And so you could certainly identify many different key players here. But Moses is one that you want to keep at your forefront of your mind saying he, I mean, certainly like when you think of children's stories in the Bible, he becomes uh, this character that comes to mind certainly. But we definitely want to place him towards the center of like God is working very uniquely through him. There are certainly other key people when you think of Abraham, when you think of uh, Jacob being the father of Israel, you think of many other key people, but Moses becomes this, at least in the Pentateuch, very foundational to everything that God is doing here. And the authorship, um, if you get into the study of this, the authorship becomes kind of an interesting thing. And for you know, 2,000 years or so, the authorship was just broadly accepted. We just said, yeah, it was Moses. No questions asked. And then in the uh, kind of the liberal awakening of theology, kind of the end of the 18th century, uh, started, questions started to be asked around text-critical things. Of what are the different sources and how do we make sense of this? And these liberal theologians started to come up with extremely complicated theories about all the different possibilities of multiple authors and multiple sources. And... As time went on, even now today, like some of these more liberal scholars have started to say, like, you know what, it's just too crazy. It doesn't work. Like, there's too many contradictions. It doesn't quite make sense. And so even conservative scholarship has kind of come back to this point where we're saying, Moses may certainly have been an editor for pieces, but like to attribute the authorship to him is not wrong. It's not misleading. It's actually uh, a fairly unifying aspect and there may have certainly been little things like at the end where he's writing about his own death like someone may have certainly added to certain little portions at the very end but this should not cause us any level of consternation to say um, Moses was probably this guy who's largely responsible for it but ultimately it's God who's carrying this forward for his people and so as you get into this if you were to go and study this you might still find you know, kind of runoffs of that liberal theology that says we don't know, we have no idea. And for us in the church, I think we can find absolute certainty to say, really we do know, and it's fairly clear to us, God has preserved this. This is something God has given to his people and continued on for the church. Um, there is a lot of confidence we have that we know what we have here, and this is unreal considering the age of this book, that we have such confidence in it. So God certainly does preserve the Bible, and it would not undermine our faith to say that someone else wrote a certain portion, Moses was the primary author. No, God certainly is preserving his Bible here. So as we continue on and we think of all of this, there are many, many questions that start to gather as we even get into the Pentateuch studies, as we get into where does this book fit into everything, we start to ask things like, where did all of these, where do all these people come from? Especially just looking at the Pentateuch itself. And if you were an original Israelite, you'd kind of want to know, where did I come from? <laughs> Origin stories, they want to know, what's my background? Where, like, okay, I want to know who this God is who's just, you know, brought me into this desert, who's brought me into this uh, journey into the promised land. But I also want to know, where did I come from? 
it becomes incredibly important. And this is something, when we say, why was Genesis written? It's very much this backstory to say, let me give you the story of where we came from, who this God is, the things that you are supposed to know about where you as the people of God came from. And you start to see this all laid out very clearly. Um, this becomes just a question. This is even God's graciousness to answer these types of questions. Because he didn't have to tell us where we all came from. He could have just said, follow me, trust me. Let's take the next step. But he says, like, no, I'm entering in with you now, I'm going to go back and show you where you came from. This is something that continues to be important to people. Like, I, I don't know if you guys have seen, like, some of those things, like, Ancestry.com. Um, like, we want to know <laughs> who my people were. And this can become a great thing, a devastating thing in multiple different uh, aspects. I don't know if you guys remember uh, the different kind of fictional tales, like Star Wars becomes one of those. Luke, you know, he comes to that moment where he realizes Darth Vader's his dad. He kind of loses his mind all of a sudden, and he's weeping and screaming, this can't be possible. Uh, why is that? Like, if I was just to open that up, why, why does that bother him so much? Or, like, why do stories about where you came from start to really matter? Yeah. And Luke didn't want to be a Sith. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. For the people of God, though, it gives you a sense of who you are. I think someone had said. Yeah. Yeah. It helps you know when you're when you are interviewing someone for a, a job or something, you want to know who they are, where they came from. Um, in a sense, like Israel had no business interviewing God, but graciously he says, I have always been. I created all things. Like you can there, there's a sense that like you start to see this is a God you can trust. This is a God that has been since the beginning. And you also get the sense that where are they? they're coming out of polytheism. Like there's gods everywhere. They're all competing for authority. And this story very clearly says, no. There's one God that since the beginning. I created all these things. And it's just a, a statement of this is where it all came from. And I'm going to state it very plainly, very simply for you. And so this starts to give, I mean, you think about, like, you're, you're walking out following someone, and you kind of have unstable feet. And for the Israelites, they had unstable feet to that point. They're saying, I kind of want to go back to slavery. You're like, have you lost your mind? <laughs> like, and they have, because that's how unstable they feel. And at this point, they get this book that says, let me give you some stability under your feet so that you know where this God came from that you know who he is, you know what he's done, and you know who you are and who you're meant to be. And you're like, okay, I have a little more. I might be able to follow you another step. And certainly God's sovereignty has to push them along. Certainly God has to carry them forward. But 
This is the graciousness of our God in Genesis to say, let me tell you a little more about where, where you're all coming from. So the structure of Genesis then, as we come back into this book that becomes um, beginning, <laughs> like in the beginning, Genesis would probably most easily be translated that way, beginning. And if we think of all of the beginnings of the people of Israel, of God, of where did this all come from, it starts to take a structure and a form to help us to understand that. So it's all it's also the beginnings, uh, it's both the beginnings of God and also the beginnings of your people, this ancestry, to say, who are the generations of? You see this motive continue on, and this actually frames the whole structure of the book of Genesis, and they will call it the Toledot structure. So this is the Hebrew word for generations of, or would be the simplest way to translate it, and so you'll see it even in your English Bibles. Many of them try and preserve that to say, here is another one of those taglines that breaks up a section. Here's the generations of. Here's the generations of. Here's the generations of. So largely, we've often broke this into two big portions. Primeval history, kind of talking about where did we all come from in general. And then the patriarchal history, who are our people? How is this being formed since God selected us as his people? And so it kind of breaks uh, mid-chapter 11, when we think of Abraham's father, Terah, and so we're starting to see this being displayed. Uh, where did we come from? And Abraham becomes kind of a key figure here because he is this guy which God makes this covenant with. A covenant that kind of encompasses all other covenants to say, I will be your God. This is what I will do for you. This is what I expect from you. And it's a very unique it's very ceremonial in that sense, in which God lays out an animal, and he walks through it, Abraham goes to sleep, and it's, it's substantial in that sense. And so, we, in some senses, we've rightly broken it into those two halves, but the book itself kind of breaks it up in these ways, if we follow this structure of the generations of. So you see in 2.4, you have this uh, rough outline on your handouts there. 2.4, it actually says, the generations of heaven and earth kind of shows how all of this is being formed. And these are coming from God, <laughs> who produced them. God, the generations of heavens and earth. The generations of Adam starts in 5.1. And it moves on to the generations of Noah and this great covenant of preservation with Noah to say, I am going to preserve still amidst the, the vile corruption of sin that has polluted Mankind, It has gone as bad as it can get, but I'm going to still preserve the generations of Noah. And then the generation of the sons of Noah continues on from there. The generations of Terah, the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac, generations of Esau, the generations of Jacob. And so you start to see that the people of Israel, what were they concerned with? What is the author addressing? They're wanting to say like, Who's my, who, who are my people? Where did we come from? And God is very specifically saying, like, I mean, we all, if you look at ancestry charts, you know, like, you can trace them back in multiple different ways and say, like, which line do I pick? Who, who's really my people? And you can kind of go back and, like, pick a certain group. And us as Americans, we're kind of fun in that because you have, like, multiple different, like, we're such mutts, really. <laughs> like, we have so many different things we can pull from. 
And so God enters in very clearly, and he says, let me tell you who your people are. Let me tell you where you're coming from. Very specifically, you come ultimately from, trace it all the way back up, from me. I am your God. You are my people. And he moves down from that. Abraham is your father. Jacob is your father. Like, you would start to learn to trust that. Something for us, um, I'm assuming everyone in here is a Gentile believer, but for us Gentiles to learn to trust as well. When God says, I am your God, you are my people, you're being brought in, you're being grafted into this family of mine. Kind of adds a sense of peace for us as well. So that's kind of a different way that we probably think of Genesis when we approach this book to say, where did we all come from? The beginnings. Who are our people? The ancestry of where everything came from. These aren't just simply nice little stories that we can just kind of turn to when we need a moral application. But in fact, these are actually giving you a foundation to put your feet on. I know that God is the one who created me. Culture can say all sorts of things around you. And you're like, I can stand on that. This is what Genesis begins to do. I know that God made this promise to Abraham. Oh, that's my family. <laughs> I can stand on that. You start to see the way that this starts to work out for the people of God, and it continues to work out for us, but especially for those Israelites who are sitting in the desert saying, what do I do with this? And it's like, this promise that God made to Abraham, very specifically for them, like, oh, I actually get to stand on those promises. The children would of Abraham would be his direct descendants, and they would say, like, I get these promises. So here there's a, um, we have many, many questions we bring to the book of Genesis. And so there's a certain sense that God does graciously answer our questions. God does graciously enter in. But there's a sense that we have to learn how to read Genesis in line with the way it was meant to be read. Primarily, you come to the book of Genesis, and God has given it to an original audience and said, this is what I'm helping you to understand. And so there is a level of self-control saying, this may not address every scientific question I have. It may have some, it should actually fit within science. God created the world. But it may not address every question that I have. And so I have to learn how to, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, when you're studying scripture, you can go up as far as the Lord speaks, and when he stops speaking, you stop. <laughs> and there's a level of being willing to say, I trust when God says that's enough. I'm not going to tell you anymore. I can listen to that. Pretty hard actually to do when you're curious <laughs> as I am about all the things. But it's uh, something that we have to learn how to say, this is the way Scripture was written. So there is indeed a sense that we have to learn to read Genesis well. I co-opted that title from a book uh, that Jack Collins wrote. And I think that at least the premise you can start to pick up from the title is helpful. Reading Genesis well. So within Genesis itself, there is a sense that the opening chapters of Genesis are exceptionally important for understanding the rest of the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch being very foundational, the rest of the Bible as well. So that becomes very helpful. You have this quote on your, your handout here. T. Desmond Alexander says this. He says, Unfortunately, discussions of Genesis 1-3 to 3 
are too often hijacked by those who are almost exclusively preoccupied by the modern debate on the relationship between contemporary science and the biblical view of creation. And one of the things I've read a bunch more by him, he's not saying that this has nothing to say about the real world that we live in, and it works very well within it, but like he said, oftentimes it gets co-opted, it gets hijacked by it. It's, it's kind of taken over by the questions that we have and, and turned into a scientific document. I found this very true. When you look at the different types of literature, I did engineering as a background, and the writing that I did for my engineering course was extremely different from the writing I did for my MDiv. Like, I had to learn how to do, use English again. <laughs> like, the writing you do for scientific documents is very, very different. And we should be able to at least recognize some basic principles like that, but it is certainly the case here. Uh, another quote I want to bring up here, um, and I'll read a bit more than you have on yours, but he says, when you look to Genesis, you can see questions begin to rise. Many controversies swell, swirl around Genesis, and especially the early chapters. Who wrote them and why? What, did, uh, the, what use did the author make of sources? And they have value in history. Uh, what use did he make of them? Do they still have value as history, even if they weren't being brought in? And how do they square with science? And he says the list goes on and on, and it gets very tedious very fast. And he says, when one turns from the controversies to the Hebrew text, the tedium vanishes, and the fascinations return. These chapters are front-loaded with all manner of vital topics, such as God's work of creating the world and mankind, what it means to be human, why our present experience is so different from that which we find in Genesis 2, and how we come to know God and to be sure of his love. Certainly there is a sense that Genesis is rich. It is full for the believers. It is full for us. And he does answer many of our questions. And there's just a simple sense of learning to follow Genesis, learning to read well. Any thoughts? Those are, I mean, there's a lot coming at you probably there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 And these guys would absolutely agree with that to say anything you read in the Bible, like, works within within the scientific world. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the Bible answers... That's right. It doesn't mean that the Bible answers every scientific question that we bring to it. And that's the thing that they're also concerned with, that these apologetic questions carry the day. To say, well, the whole world wants to know all this. Can we just make the Bible say it? And he's saying, well, it may not have been, even been interested in that. But there are times, like when... Uh, in history, like one of the things the church had stated as a doctrine at one point was the world is flat. <laughs> All of a sudden, science pr proved that the world was not flat. And actually the church, it was the universal church at this point, the Catholic church, which before the Reformation, had to say like, well, I guess maybe let's go back to Scripture and see if we got that wrong. And that's the type of view to say like, well, that doesn't actually conflict with 
the Bible at all. It doesn't mean that the Bible actually says the world is round, but you're like, well, this doesn't conflict. Isaac, yeah. Right. Yeah. And good science is like putting up a hypothesis is like daring the world to disprove it. Like test it. See if it's true. <laughs> I was like, well, the world seems very round now that we've sailed around it. <laughs> yeah. Extremely. It's actually kind of funny. These guys bring that up in that sense, but it became even more funny in COVID. <laughs> Not funny. I don't know what it is. <laughs> mm, yeah. I'll move on. <laughs> uh, so there is a sense as we look at Genesis that there is a willingness and ability for the church to learn how to read Scripture well. And this is true for all of Scripture, but especially Genesis when it becomes so found foundational to us. Um, there is in one sense, is these literary style changes that happen in understanding what is the author doing here. And the literary style changes actually come up 1, 1 to 2, 3, all these, like God created on the first day, second day, all these things. It's kind of um, zoomed very far out, saying this is what happened in a broad perspective. And then all of a sudden, 2, 4, it moves in, and he's walking very closely with Adam. It's like the style of that literature just changed drastically. And you have to learn how those different styles have implication on our interpretation. Is it just a scientific text that just states things generally? Like, no, it, there's different things the author is trying to accomplish. And in those moments, uh, God is, or the author is kind of moving our perspective from out here into here. And we have to learn how to follow where he's going. And you see all of a sudden it it starts to change the way you read text like this. Uh, so Mike Williams uh, says this. He says, it's important to realize, and I'll close with this. He says, it's important to realize that the revelation of the book of Genesis had not been given before the time of the Exodus. The Israel God rescued from Egypt through the Red Sea and led, led to the wilderness of Sinai was the first audience of the book of Genesis. The first people to hear or read the book of Genesis as written revelation. While creation of the world, the fall into sin, our first parents, the stories of the Noahic flood, Babel, and the patriarchs predated the Exodus. The written revelation of these events does not make place, take place until the wilderness. And this is on your paper. He says, people have reasons for writing, and they write to someone. This is no less true of the books of Scripture than it is for the last letter or email you wrote to your mother. Thus, interpreting texts involves not merely discerning what is being said, but also discerning the author's purpose or intention, the context of writing, and how the original hearers, the first audience, would hear the message of the writer. And so in the Reform Camp, one of the things we want to say is we are committed to redemptive historical interpretations of Scripture. And this becomes that historical interpretation piece. When we're saying that, we're saying, how did the original authors 
or hearers hear this redemptive historical interpretation of Scripture. So that's something we can come back to. But you start to see what we're trying to do is to say, can I hear this book the way it was meant to be heard? Uh, there are certainly implications that carry beyond the first audience for the church, for us. God knew what he was doing. But primarily, he wrote it first for them. So we have to learn how to hear it that way a little bit. So here's a quick overview of what we're going to look at. If you look at the, the schedule, as I mentioned, there's many different things you could focus in on Genesis. And you could spend uh, many, many weeks. In fact, we could probably spend all year on this topic, if not multiple years. But we're going to go through these different topics. So this week we're just kind of giving this broad overview of where does this book fit in Scripture? What is its value? How do we read it? How do we approach it? Uh, but the next two weeks we're going to be looking at creation. Uh, in two parts, then we're going to look at the fall. Uh, we're going to look at sin as it unfolds in Genesis specifically, not necessarily a theological topic, but to see like what is happening here. Then we're also going to look at uh, the genealogies and families, this Toledot structure that begins to emerge and say, what is going on here? What is the author wanting us to see? And then looking at some of these key stories and families, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, and then if we... Pick another one that we just can't help. We may fill that in and have more time. But hey, maybe, maybe we'll just continue on into the summer and just go. We'll see how this goes. But that's the general plan. So if there's different things you want to study, let me know. If there's things that you're dying to look at in Genesis, let me know. And we will see if we can make some time for that uh, and the different people teaching that. So let's pray and we'll close this morning. Father, we do thank you for the rich blessing we have in Genesis. Lord, there really rightly should be no end to our interest in books like this. Lord, help us to learn what you would have us learn from Genesis. Help us to learn how to speak well into our culture in light of Genesis. Learn how to shape our own hearts and minds to be rightly oriented to you in light of what we learn in Genesis. Lord, we're so thankful that you were gracious enough to give us a book like this to give your people a book like this, the church this book, that you preserved it for us to study and to know. Lord, we have been blessed as a church today in America with rich, rich, with rich, rich resources. Not only this book, but different scholars and studies and different things we can push into. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to lose sight of, even in the midst of all of that, uh, learning to know you, our God, more closely. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.